and remember this. Never forget this! Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. So in my last podcast, uh, you may have noticed that I had a jab against my guest. And I mentioned that he is an armchair capitalist. And I wanted to take this opportunity because I don't have a decent episode four yet from previous recordings. Uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to, to, to talk about exactly what I mean by that and to talk about capitalism in general. In a lot of the groups that I listen to, uh, capitalism is demonized. And I, I just want to take a couple minutes to describe to you kind of where I'm coming from in relationship to the economy and to capitalism and to where I see people like my guest in, in the last show. Um, that show was about uh, gay rights, by the way. Um, how capitalists like him, they're really not capitalists. So, so let's get into the, let's get into the basics. So first and foremost, um, my position is that there are capitalists, which are folks that will take an extraordinary amount of risk in order to gain control of capital, whether it be human or um, mechanical, whether, well, let's just say whether it be human or non-human capital, in order to have that capital generate income for them. So, uh, generally speaking, and myself being a capitalist, um, meaning when I say that, I'm not your armchair capitalist, right? I'm not your Ayn Rand objectivist, you know, libertarian moron who thinks that the word capitalism is awesome and all you got to do is say it and, uh, you know, the free market will cure us from all of our diseases. Everything should be privatized. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. That's not a capitalist, okay? At least that's not the kind of capitalist I am. And any of these armchair capitalists that don't own capital are buffoons. They don't know what they're talking about, okay? They're naive and they don't have any balls. So I'm a capitalist and I say that because I own capital. I have ownership of things that make me money, okay? I also have more recently invested in some human capital that also makes me money. And so I understand more about capitalism in that sense, in the sense that I'm a capitalist than, you know, for instance, my guest on the on the last show on season one, episode three, the episode on gay rights. I don't think that the free market economy is going to solve all of our problems. And I don't think Adam Smith was correct in, when he when he thought that the invisible hand would would solve everything. I don't think markets correct themselves necessarily. Some markets do seem to, but we can't just... In other words, Adam Smith didn't collect all the data to determine whether or not markets correct themselves. What he did was he postulated that markets would correct themselves based on his uh, hypotheses and based on his fundamentals, the foundations of what he thought was a, you know, a healthy economy. Now, he was right in a lot of ways, but he was wrong in the sense that economies don't necessarily correct 
Okay. It, and a case in point, many economies move towards monopoly. A monopoly is not, it is a, it is not a, a free market solution. Monopoly is the opposite of a free market solution. So, okay. That's, that's be, that's, that's where I'm coming from initially. In a sense, it's that kind of capitalist that I'm railing against, but I do think that capitalism is getting a bad rap. I do think that if you are the type of person that has the, um, you're able to manage your level of risk. If you don't mind having, if you're the type of person that is all right being exposed to a high level of risk, then you should be, at least in the beginning, able to get the reward. So folks that invest in machinery and go into huge amounts of debt and take on all kinds of employees or engineers uh, to get a concept, let's say, uh, let's just talk about Tesla for a second. So, you know, Elon Musk had a leg up because he had a successful business before he launched Tesla. But if you were going to be Elon Musk without uh, PayPal, without his, you know, that was his cornerstone business that he used to then launch Tesla. If you're going to be him, you have you have to come up with a concept. You have to pay people to drop that concept. You have to pay engineers to design that concept. You even have to potentially build that concept. And in order to do all this, you have to get investors. You have to be willing to take a lot of risk. He had to go into a lot of debt. Okay, I'm in a in a serious amount of debt because of the capital that I own, and the capital hasn't paid itself off yet. So I'm still at high risk in most cases. So I understand that. And the folks that are willing to take big risks ought to be able to cash in on big rewards. We need to incentivize folks that have a predisposition for taking risk and for uh, trying to cash in for, for this entrepreneurial spirit where they try to cash in on their creativity, right? They have a vision about the future and about what they want for the world. And they're willing to take those steps and take those risks to make that future come true, even though they don't know if they're going to win. They don't know if they're going to succeed. And this is what we see with all the products that are being made out there too. You know, people put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into developing products, even something as simple as like lotion, skin lotion or sunscreen. Um, people put in a lot of effort to make these things and they don't know if it's going to be successful. And if it's not successful, then those are sunken costs and that's a huge risk for them. So we need to incentivize those people because they help make the world a better place. They help bring goods to market and they help provide services. So we need them. But we also have to understand that there's a huge percentage of the population that is not willing to take risk whatsoever. If you're the kind of person uh, that my guest was on the uh, on the previous show, he is not willing to take risk. He does not have any balls, right? But what he does have are skills. He is willing to trade in his time and money for an education and to enhance and further hone his skills. So he specializes in a certain field in the IT industry, and that's what he trades his his time for. So with, there's a huge section of the population that has no interest in in uh, in incurring any personal risk, any personal financial risk, but is willing to invest in their uh, skill set and their intellect, and they are willing to become competent so that they can, at the very least, carry out tasks. These are people that don't have much creativity. They don't have much drive. They don't have much uh, need for success. What they need is to just be put to use. They just want to be useful. Now, 
anybody anywhere has that want. Just generally speaking, just think of how you interact with your spouse or your significant other. Oftentimes, people report that they feel best when they're being utilized by their partner. They just want to feel useful. They don't care if they get anything in return necessarily. They just want to be needed. They want to be wanted, right? This is something that massive amounts of of the population feel, and therefore, they're perfect to plug in to the human resources aspect of the economy. Now, let's talk about what happens after you are this risk. You're you're not risk averse. You're the kind of person that's willing to take big risks. And we want you to take those big risks. And then you get the reward, right? Your business is successful or your product is a success. You know, it launches and everybody wants it. And so, you, you know, now you're you're selling millions upon millions of, of units of your product or or whatever it is, right? Your website is a is a success, your your idea is a success. Society accepts it and they want it, which by the way, uh, is part of the reason why free market economies such as ours or, you know, hybrid economies such as ours often tend towards monopoly because there is only one Facebook. There's only one website that does what Facebook does. And so, and there's only one website that everybody wants. Even if that Facebook has competitors, it's still the one everybody wants. <laughs> it's the one everybody wants to use. So it's a natural monopoly. Okay. Let's say, let's just talk about Facebook as our example. So Mark Zuckerberg, now he's worth like a couple hundred billion dollars, right? Or, or whatever, a hundred billion dollars. He got rewarded for his risk, right? I think it's safe to say that whatever risk he took, he has now, he, he has now gotten the reward back plus, right? And what we see now is a tendency that once these risk averse or once these people who are able to uh, withstand high amounts of risk, once they get to the promised land, once they get to their successful position, we see huge income gaps. So what could we do? What can we do to resolve that income gap? We don't want to negatively impact their ability and their uh, their willingness to take risk. We don't want that. But clearly, after, I don't know, $50 billion or, or whatever the number is, I don't know what the number is. Maybe, maybe as a democracy, we should ask the billionaires, what is the right number? Who's asking these billionaires and who's asking these successful entrepreneurs, okay, at what point did you feel, at what number did you feel like you received payback for the risk that you took? And maybe that's where we set the number. But right now, I'm just going to set it. It's either the, the numbers that come into my head are either something in the billions, like $5 billion or $10 billion or something like that, or a million dollars a month for the rest of your life, right? Now, that might not be the right number. $12 million a year might not be the right number. But I'm just saying, okay, at what point do we say that that person, Mark Zuckerberg, has been repaid for the risk that he took and now has to address how much the human capital, the human resources that he owns, that he pays for, how much of that, those human resources... I said owns. I, sorry, I didn't mean owns. I meant how much of those human resources that he pays for, how much are they really generating now? Because it, it really, at some point, the baton gets passed over from the person that initially took the risk and built the infrastructure to the folks that maintain it. And those folks now are the folks that need to be compensated for maintaining this public good or this private good that serves the public and, and and provides so much value in our economy. So at what point should a capitalist, right, like Elon Musk or whoever, trade some of their immense wealth to the to support and to equitably pay those that maintain that wealth? So 
Elon Musk just, you know, became the richest man in the world in the last month or so. Jeff Bezos is right at his heels, right? They didn't really do much over the last year to to benefit the economy. They just benefited from, Bezos being the best example of this, I think, just benefited from the circumstances. So this is like uh, evolution, right? Uh, natural selection occurred in our economy and it pushed all economic activity to online and delivery, right? So people stopped going out and they started getting stuff delivered to them. And those noises you hear in the background are my dog Muggsy. I'm going to see if I can shut him up. So thanks to COVID-19, Jeff Bezos became much more rich than he already was, you know, like $30 billion or whatever it was. And all that he really did was maintain the foundation, you know, the, the structure of the business that he already had. So he had a whole bunch of infrastructure. Obviously, he deserves something for building this infrastructure. It's nice that there are, you know, vans driving all over the city with the word Amazon on the side of them and nice young people that come to your door and knock and take a picture and all that other good stuff and say, your order's delivered. It tells you on your on your phone, your order's here. I mean, the system that he put together is fantastic. The system that he put together is clearly fantastic. But the reason he became $30 billion richer... Now, I'm using that as a number. I don't know if that's the right number. I'm just saying. The reason he became $30 billion richer is because he had that foundation in place and it's now being leveraged by society due to a pandemic. So he was naturally selected for success. It was it was a it it was it was less a product of the amount of work that he put in at the beginning. You know that famous picture where it's like a, a small tiny office and Amazon is just on one of those cheap you know plastic banners that you buy at Kinkos or whatever. It's less about the work that he put in then and more about the work that the people that work for him are putting in now. So where's where's their share of the thirty billion, right? Why wouldn't they also benefit from that? And that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to decide. Now, if we've learned one thing, it's that billionaires do not think that they owe anybody anything. They don't feel at this point anyway that they need to give away their money. Now, I know there's a lot of billionaires that have pledged to give away 99% of their money, right, by the time they die or whatever, but they're really not doing it. They're not doing it. Where is the billions of dollars that Warren Buffett and and uh, I think Bill Gates and these other billionaires, where's the billions of dollars that they promised to inject into the into the economy? Where is it? We could fucking use it right now. And they're not doing it. And why aren't they doing it? I think this is human nature. They're not incentivized to do it. And just about everybody, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but just about everybody picks whatever position they think is best for them and then backs their way into the ethical underpinnings that they think is going to support that position. So they're not really engaging in any kind of ethical discussion. They're not determining whether or not what they're doing is moral or ethical. They're already making up their decision. They're saying, here's what I'm going to do because that's best for me. And then I'm going to have to walk my way back. I'm going to have to figure out what the argument is that supports my decision. So they're they're engaging in bias. They're in, they're engaging in the same kind of bias that Christians do and fundamentalists and religious people, right? If it, fundamentalists and and Christians say the same thing all the time. They say, uh, well, if God exists, if the Bible is true, and then they say a whole bunch of other stuff. So they presuppose the Bible is true for no good reason whatsoever. Now, the same thing is happening with these billionaires. They're presupposing that they should get the $30 billion, and then they figure out a way to make that work afterwards. They figure out whatever argument makes it so they can keep their $30 billion. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to rip away the $30 billion from them. I don't want to. I don't want to have to. But it seems to me very clear that the folks that run a company like Amazon, let's say, 
they deserve a much bigger share of the money than they're getting. They deserve a huge chunk of that $30 billion. And why not? Why not spread your wealth around if you have it? What good is it if you're not going to give it, if if you're not, if it's not going to benefit all the folks that worked hard to help you accumulate it? So I don't know what the actual answer is. I just know that that's the problem. This is the problem that we're running into. We're running into a very small group of people, a select few, the smallest minority on the planet, perhaps, right? Being in control of the most resources, being in control of the most governmental resources, right? Buying senators and whatnot, influencing everybody so that they can maintain their position. This is a very human thing to do. I don't blame them for wanting this. But clearly, it's a problem when a huge amount of people who effectively support them by using their service and allow them to make money by being a human resource for them, by working for them, those people are are not rewarded at all. Or maybe not at all, but they're not rewarded very much. They're not rewarded enough. So back to my point. <laughs> What's my point, right? What are you talking about, dude? Well, initially, I wanted to discuss uh, a little bit about the economy and where I stand. So I am definitely a capitalist. I think that there's good reason to engage in capitalism. And I think capitalism can assist an economy in gaining ground. And I think it can raise all boats in lots of situations. I also think that at a certain point, the capitalist, once they've reached the homeland or the promised land of their payoff, right? Once they've reached success, tend to try to tip the scales in their favor and then maintain or hoard that money at the top. I think that's a problem. I think that's the problem with capitalism. And I think that the economy works best when you take certain aspects of it out of the capitalist framework, right? So maybe this isn't the economy, but society works best when you take certain aspects of it out of a capitalist privatized framework. So I would argue that education is first and foremost a public enterprise. It's not to generate the most income. It's not to generate the most wealth. I think it's to generate the best people that are then capable of generating great wealth. So it can be it can be boiled down to wealth, but the education itself, public school or whatever you want to call it, the education itself is is not subject to what sells the best. The education itself has to be standardized. And by standardized, I don't want to I don't want to be misunderstood. It needs to be that which we can show to be true. What is evidential? What is evidence? What's falsifiable? What has the data borne out to be true? What do the theories in what do the scientific theories say? That's what we should be teaching people. That's how to educate people. The, 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 we should educate people based on the things that we know to be true. And I use the word know a little bit loosely, but we know for a fact that evolution occurred and we should be teaching it to people whole cloth, full stop. And no alternative because there is no alternative. But back to economics or back to societal, how to build a society, right? That aspect of society is clearly, clearly needs to be subject to certain standards, needs to be a product of the people, meaning it needs to be uh, funded by everybody for everybody. And the level, the standard, the level of education, the value of that education, meaning how truthful it is, how accurate it is, how accurately that education represents reality needs to be held to the highest standard. And that is not a capitalist endeavor. I'm not exactly sure where that qualifies in an, in, from an economic standpoint, whether it's socialist or whether it's communist or whether it's capitalist. I'm not exactly sure where it qualifies, but I know it's not. I guess I should say that. I don't know, I, I don't know exactly where it qualifies, but I know it's 
not capitalist. It's not a for-profit. Um, it's not a for-profit endeavor. It's not something that we would do for-profit because if it's for-profit, then it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter how how accurate the curriculum is. What matters is is what people are willing to pay for, and those are two different things, and they need to be separated, and it needs to be recognized that they are two different things, and they should be separated. So maybe that means it's a socialist that it needs to be funded by the people for the people and the government being representatives for the people should be the ones that get those that that maintain production of good smart citizens that can then go into the world and generate income for themselves or or you know that can that can innovate that can make the world a better place i don't know exactly what the answer is to that but i think that's a good stopping point at this at this point i think the idea here is to address what i said in the in the first podcast right that there are armchair capitalists out there that have no idea what they're talking about and if you think that the economy needs to be fully privatized and that the invisible hand of the market is going to correct for everything you've got another thing coming and public education would be an exact would be a perfect example of where you're wrong and the market's tendency towards monopoly would be an exact would be a, a contradiction to this free market capitalist quote unquote utopia that these armchair capitalists are pushing for there is no other amazon it is essentially a monopoly so in what way then is that free market it, it, there are huge barriers to entry into that market at this point and clearly something needs to be a, some of the problems with capitalism needs to be addressed we're not going to handcuff ourselves by saying oh well we can't take away wealth from the top 8 people in the country that have all of it and help to make it more fair for the bottom 50% of the country or 60% or whatever it is right we can't we can't hogtie ourselves with our ideals just because we want our ideals to be true and it's important that we address that and moving forward that's part of what i'm going to try to do with this podcast i thought at this point and just to now end this that's the all i'm going to talk about for capitalism for now i think i made my point <laughs> we'll find out but Part of what I'm going to do moving forward in the podcast, and let's talk about the podcast, because if you've been listening, then you know that I'm using this first season, these old recordings that I did three years ago, four years ago, um, in an effort to to sort of uh, to explore the the podcasting the podcasting landscape and to and to determine what it was I wanted to talk about. What I what I fell on was there are some main topics that I know a lot about or think I know a lot about that I have a lot of passion about. And I want to discuss those and I want to engage with other people on those topics. And so more and more as I podcast, more and more as I engage with people on these topics, I find more and more that I need to do something different because it's not working. So for instance, season one, episode one, the right to life episode where I talked to the Minnesota misanthrope didn't work, right? I didn't get anything out of that episode other than, holy cow, we don't agree on anything, right? We didn't get anywhere. So my personal goal of understanding what right to life is and how it's applied and and being able to secure my position my moral and ethical stance on what the right to life does for me and society in general and what I would advocate for, what I would vote for, didn't get anywhere. All it did was, you know, wake me up to the fact that holy cow, there's there's some real there's some real disconnects here. There's there are other people in the world that don't see it my way and are willing to to fight for it, right? Are willing to argue about it. And and to no avail. Like they're not they're not making a good argument. They're just willing to say, I'm right, here's why. I don't care. Blah la la, right? Plug my ears. It happened again in the last episode, right? When we're talking about gay rights. It'll happen again when I have a, a 
a conversation with a theist in, I believe it's next season. It might be the season after that, depending on how I order these recordings. So how am I going to solve this problem? Because here's where I want my podcast to go. I want to... There's like five or six really specific topics that I want to give... That I want to dive into in depth with you. And I want to share with you. And I want to get passionate about and I want to become a better person. I want to be smarter. I want to get sharper. I want to be more grounded in reality so that I have a better foundation to build on on top of that. And I'm not that interested in entertainment. So Minnesota Misanthrope, he he likes to do you know movie reviews, and we're going to do that. And we we're going to talk about wrestlers. <laughs> he went a deep dive into '80s wrestling just on a YouTube binge or whatever, and he had a lot to say about it. So we talked about it. But that's not really what I'm interested in. I'm not really interested in presenting that to the people. Now that's not to say that I'm not going to engage in movies and literature and pop culture as a, a way of reflecting, using that as a reflection of what I'm saying or what I'm interested in. But I'm just saying it's not my goal. I'm not red letter media. I'm not going to be you know, doing movie reviews. So I wanted to take this moment to give you just a taste, albeit sort of flying by the seat of my pants, right? This was just... I just did this inspired. I didn't script this, in other words, of what I'd like to do in the future. This is just a taste of what I'd like to do in the future. Now, to be clear, more of what I'm going to do in the future when I talk about economics, when I talk about capitalism, when I talk about socialism, when I talk about free will, when I talk about more morality and ethics, when I talk about um, other topics that I'm uh, really interested in, I am going to do a scripted show so that it's direct and to the point and there's no wasteful language. So you'll look, hopefully you can look forward to that. And I'm going to have multiple series. There's going to be small series that I'm going to publish. So I have an idea for a series called Nuanced, where I take one topic and I look at it from multiple different angles over the course of, let's say, three or four episodes. And then that one topic is nuanced. Now we have a nuanced understanding of it. Then I move on to the next topic, nuanced, right? A new topic. We look at all different angles and discover what we're going to talk about. So one of the examples, for instance, is free will. There's a lot to talk about in free will. Determinism. And there's the, they're like moguls that you have to weave in and out of, right? They're, they're markers that you have to slalom through in order to make sure that you cover all that ground. Well, that's what we're going to do over the course of multiple episodes. We're going to slalom through so that we avoid the obstacles and have a better understanding of what it is we're actually talking about. That's where this podcast is headed. That's the, that's the stuff, that's the production that I'm working on right now as soon as I get this first season published. So I think I'll leave it at that. Please stay tuned. Please binge watch season two after I after I publish it. Please engage with my website after I get that up and running. Please leave comments on wherever you listened to this show. If they have a place to leave comments or feedback, please do that. Let's get engaged. Let's let's talk to one another with the end result being we both become better people. Let's see how right we can get instead of digging in. Let's see how much of our false assumptions and logical fallacies and personal problems. Let's see how many of those we can slough off to then be reborn out of these ideas with a fresh look on the information and a rock-solid foundation from which to jump off of into the stratosphere of higher thinking and free thinking. I'll leave that with you today. Thank you so much for listening to Ear Seduction. Just fuck it.